Well, good morning again. It's been a few weeks and I feel like rusty almost and in message prep and that. So forgive me, but uh, it was just really good uh, for Deborah and I to get away. We had a terrific time together. We did a lot of scuba diving. We did a lot of relaxing, some dancing, romancing. It was just, it was a fun time. It's just so fun to be newlyweds after 38, 37, almost 38 years now. We had a, a great time. It, it might take me a little while to stop saying things like Yaman or Wagwan. I learned that's Patois for what's going on, Wagwan. And so anyway, but even more thankful than for the time away, I'm just so thankful for the job that Dan and others did while we were gone. I mean, Dan did such a tremendous job with the teaching. He's in the back now with the junior high kids. Once a month, Dan will be teaching the junior high class. So it'll be a few weeks where you don't see him in here. But uh, his teaching was so good. I've been saying this week that I came back to a healthier church than I left. And Dave's teaching as well. And so I'm really thankful for that. So I just thought that in the best interest of the church, you know, Deborah and I would go back to Jamaica next month (laughs) again. I heard her say, Yaman. (laughs) Me like that too. (laughs) Yeah. No, we just really glad to get away, but we're glad to get back. And so this morning, for the next 45 minutes, we're going to be studying the Word of God. And we're in our study in 1 John. And it's part of a series in the, in the short letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And the title is Absolute Certainty. And we've been saying the key verse in this is 1st John 5.13, which says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know the truth with absolute certainty. That's the theme of this book, as I see it, absolute certainty. Over 30 times in this short letter, John writes about knowing. And let me give you a little sample. 1 John 2, 5, we know we are in him. We know that we have passed from death to life. We know that we belong to the truth. We know that he lives in us. We know that we are children of God and on and on and on. And many times he says, this is how we know. And then he goes on to explain it. He doesn't want there to be any mistake or any uncertainty for those who believe. Now, maybe you think of faith as being something you have to turn to when there is no certainty. Well, I can't really know. I just have to have faith. But that is not the case for for Christianity and the Christian faith. Listen to Hebrews 11.1. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. The Christian faith and certainty go hand in hand. It's not faith in the absence of certainty, it's faith because we have certainty. And so as we continue in this series this morning, the message title is Absolute Certainty of What's Inside. And our text is going to be 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 29. And three simple parts to the outline. The truth in verses 24 and 25. The spirit in 26 and 27. And finally, the assurance in 28 and 29. So it's a short text. And I want to start by just reading through it together. And uh, I'll be reading from the 1984 NIV translation. So beginning in verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, even eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit... Just as it has taught you, remain in him. And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So let's start by looking, first of all, at the truth in verses 24 and 25. It says, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And the focus here, what they heard in the beginning, it's referring to the truth of the gospel. All you have to do is look back a couple verses at the end of verse 20, where it says, all of you know the truth. And then verse 21, I did not write you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. This is what he's referring to, what they heard from the beginning, the truth of the gospel. These believers heard it. They heard the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, the Son of God. And it's that same truth that we have recorded for us in the Bible. They heard it from the apostles directly. We have the writing of the apostles inspired by the Spirit of God. And so we have many of these writings are firsthand accounts, just like um, the epistle of 1 John. And that's what we're studying do you remember the first time you heard the truth of the gospel and believed? The very first time? Over the past two weeks, Stephen Kaufman and Kelly Jarris have been on a mission trip uh, to Kenya, Africa. And they visited remote villages where the name of Jesus had probably never even been spoken. And they shared the gospel with the people and they handed out hundreds of Bibles and this is a picture of two boys who heard the truth for the very first time. And they received a Bible. And you can see them just fascinated as they're looking at that. Um, in two weeks on Sunday morning, Stephen and Kelly are going to come share more about their trip. And they have some video that was captured while they were there. And they're going to just share more about that. And I'm really looking forward to it. But this is a bit what it was like for the believers that John was writing to. They went into places that had never heard the name Jesus or the gospel. And the apostles came to their town and they shared the truth. And so we talked a lot about truth last time, maybe three, four weeks ago. And remember one of the characteristics of truth? It never changes. Truth never changes. If it does, it wasn't truth to begin with. I'm blown away by these textbooks that, well, this discovery has now rewritten everything we know about this or about that. Well, it wasn't true in the first place. If it's now changed, I'm still not sure we have it right. But truth never changes. Now, here's the danger then that John is trying to warn us about. People, you and I included, are almost always attracted to new things, aren't we? We like the latest, greatest, newest thing. Whether that's like an iPad or a laptop or a new car or a new home. Maybe even for some, a new marriage, a new relationship. There's like this excitement. It's all new to us. But as time goes on and it becomes more and more familiar, it just seems ordinary. It doesn't feel the same. It might feel old or outdated, passe. And so it could lead us to look for the next new thing. It's just kind of part of our human nature. And so in our Recalibrate Bible study yesterday morning, the men's Bible study, we were studying Acts chapter 17 where Paul travels to the city of Athens. And it's a city filled with literally thousands, tens of thousands of idols to different gods. And so it says in verse 21 of Acts 17, it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They were all looking for something new. Well, the problem is new is not better when it comes to the truth of the gospel. And so yet as people, we have this longing for something new. And this can lead us astray. And this is what John is warning us about here. Today, there's all kinds of new Christian movements. There's the emergent church. There's the new Christian church. They call it the new church movement. And they are taking the truth of the gospel and they're adding to it some new revelation. 
Now, the website for the New Church Movement, it's newchurch.org. You can, you can look it up on your own. But here's a little bit about of what it says. Um, listen to this quote. It's talking about the birth of the church, and they believe in the Bible, and they believe in Jesus Christ, but then they say this. The church grew, but with time it began to fall away from what it was originally intended to be. Now, I don't disagree with that some. Once again, the people of the earth were prey to spiritual darkness. To bring light into the world, God came again. However, this time he did not appear in human form. He came as a new body of revelation given to us through the writings of Emanuel Swedenborg, an 18th century scientist and theologian. Check it out, something new. And guess what? They reinterpret scripture and they add to it. And it's new and exciting. One, one pastor in the video on the new church movement said this changes everything about Christianity. Everything becomes different. And it's twisted. And it's heretical. Well, as big of a problem as this is because of our human nature, it's not a new problem at all. Paul wrote to the Galatians in 49 AD. That's like, what, 16 years after the resurrection? He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And so John writes as a warning in verse 24, see that what you have heard from the beginning, the truth remains in you. Are you, do you get tired of hearing the same old truth? Are you looking for something new and fresh? Maybe something different than the truth you heard when you were first saved. I mean, the bookstores are full of books with the latest thing in Christianity. Some of it's good, some of it is not. But if you're longing for something new, in regard to the gospel, well, then you're in great danger because false teachers can easily come and entice you and lead you astray. So the first thing that should be inside, the title, what's inside? The first thing that should be inside a believer is a rock solid, the rock solid unchanging truth of the gospel. It should remain in us. Verse 24, it continues, it says... If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. So, again, 1 John is a letter being written to believers. It's very clear. And it says it's written to those who have the truth. And so, for them, being led astray is not a matter of losing their salvation. When it says, if that truth remains in you, you will remain in the Son. It's not saying if, they, if you abandon that truth... You've lost your salvation. But what it's talking about is if you abandon that truth, you're going to be walking in darkness and you're going to lose the close fellowship with the Son and with the Father. We talked about the difference between relationship and fellowship. You can be part of a family. They're your relatives, but you cannot have fellowship with them. Maybe you're estranged. Maybe you haven't seen them in years. You can have relationship without fellowship. Well, that's kind of what this passage is talking about. To the believers, a person can be saved and have a relationship with God. But if they err from the truth, if they don't remain in the full truth of God's word, then they'll lose their close fellowship with the Lord. Because we're to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So we're going to come back to this idea of close fellowship in just a bit. But the first question, do you have the truth? Inside you. And are you holding fast to it? Then secondly, the spirit. In verses 26 and 27. It says, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit... Just as it has been taught you, remain in him. So these verses, they're continuing to draw a contrast between false teachers who are trying to lead people astray and true believers, the church. 
It's drawing a contrast between Christian and Antichrist. Remember, Antichrist is used not just of one person who will come later, but of all of those who oppose Christ. It said earlier, many Antichrists have gone out into the world. Many people are in opposition to Christ. But it contrasts this, it highlights it in verse 27. It says, as for you. And so again, he's writing to the church, to believers. And there's no doubt about this because he says, the anointing you received from him remains in you. What is this anointing talking about? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. Just look back at verse 20. It says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. So if you're a believer, you've been anointed with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God. And that is given to you once at the moment you believe. And it remains in you. And it seals you. It's your guarantee of the inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now imagine for a moment what it might have been like to be one of Jesus' disciples. Can you imagine that? Like walking with him. You go up on the mount and you hear his teaching. Every morning you wake up and you get to hear him teaching you about all that you observe. About all about God. You're walking alongside him. He's being a friend and you're enjoying his fellowship. Maybe he points out some of your, the sin in your life gently but firmly. You're listening. He's revealing the deep truths about God. He's comforting and encouraging you when you're down. Imagine that. You're having a bad day and Jesus is right there. Encouraging you with the word of God and comforting you with his truth. And he bestows on you his power and authority as a disciple. Wouldn't that be amazing? And the disciples experienced this, but in John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Now think about that. What do you mean it's for my good you're going away? I'm enjoying the teaching. I'm enjoying the fellowship. And this is not I'm going away to die for your sin and rise again. This is after the resurrection. I'm going away and it's for your good. How could that possibly be for our good? Why didn't Jesus rise and just hang out for 2,000 years with us? Wouldn't that have been better? He could come right here and teach. It would be awesome. But he says, it's good for you that I am going away. And then he continues, unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's good because when Jesus went away, he sent something even better. Even better than Jesus. The counselor, the Holy Spirit. What the Bible describes as the spirit of Jesus. It uses that title, the spirit of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the 24-7-365 presence of Jesus. Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. And he was only in one place at any time. He could hang out with the 12 or the three closest disciples, but then he wasn't with the masses. He could be on this side of the sea, but he couldn't be over there. But the Spirit, the 24-7-365 presence of Jesus... Think about this. The Spirit teaches us, just like Jesus did. The Spirit reveals truth, just like Jesus did. The Spirit comforts us. The Spirit confronts us in our sin. The Spirit encourages us, just like Jesus would have. The Spirit empowers us, just like Jesus empowered his disciples. This is why Jesus was able to say, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Because I'm going to go away and I'm going to send you something better. My spirit. And I'll never leave you or forsake you. See, this is why he's saying, the anointing you received in the spirit remains in you. You're a child of God. Every believer has the spirit, the indwelling presence of God within them. 
And so again, verse 27 says, as for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you. He's on the inside. He's a guarantee of our inheritance. And he's teaching and comforting and convicting and encouraging and all of those things. And empowering us to follow Jesus. Now what it says next in verse 27, though, might cause you to scratch your head. It says, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Because as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as he has taught you, remain in him. Now, this kind of sounds strange, given I'm standing up here teaching, and the whole purpose of John's letter was what? To teach the believers. So why does he say you don't need anybody to teach you? I don't know. <laughs> it's a mystery. No, it, 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 here's what's going on here. You have to understand the context of the whole Bible. Ephesians 4 says it was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and listen, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service, to prepare God's people, not just to evangelize, to build up God's people, the church. It says that the body of Christ may be built up. Remember the Great Commission? Go for, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in what? Teaching them everything I have commanded you. Teaching is an important part of the ministry to the church. So it's not discounting the role of teachers. But these believers and even the teachers, they don't get their wisdom from any human source. They're not dependent upon humans for the truth. That truth comes from the Holy Spirit himself. Jesus said in John 16, 13, he said, When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The spirit does that. He opens our heart and he leads a believer in the truth. But he doesn't do it through some direct revelation. You're not like Emmanuel Swedenborg where you're going to go to bed and you're going to have the new revelation of the truth. How does the Spirit lead you in all truth? Through His Word and through Spirit-led teachers of the Word. That's how He leads us in truth. And even as I'm here teaching now, it's the Spirit of God that's helping you understand and apply that truth to your heart. I'm always amazed that it can be one message, but the Spirit uses it in different ways and different people. Puts his fingers on different things in our hearts and said, this is what you need to hear. And he illuminates it for us. That's the Spirit. I pray for like 30 minutes on Sunday morning. God, you know, apart from you and your Spirit, no good thing will come of this message. We need you. You have to do this work. That's the Spirit leading us in truth. Well, I heard about a boy who was watching his father who was a pastor. And his father was preparing a sermon. And the boy said, well, how do you know what to say? And the, then the father said, why, God tells me. And the boy said, oh, well, why do you cross so many things out? <laughs> yeah, why do you? Well, even... A pastor teacher who's striving to follow the Spirit of God will not always get it right. He will not. And so, as believers, we need to discern truth. And God has given us a truth detector. Nathan in the Recalibrate study said yesterday, it's like a check engine light. You've ever been listening to teaching and you go, that's not, something there is just not right. That is not right. I know that's not right. And then what do you do next? You go to the word of God and you search it out. This doesn't sound right. I'm going to check it out. See, the word of God is our standard of truth. It has to be. It's our standard of truth. And back to our Recalibrate study in Acts chapter 17, it said... Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul, the apostle, said was true. They go back to the word of God. So you and I don't need some new revelation to reveal the truth to us. If we're saved, we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of truth is in us. And he leads us in all truth. That means he, he illuminates the truth 
and he warns us when something we're hearing is not truth. We still need teachers, but the Spirit leads us in that truth. So, the second half of 27 and 28, I'll just read it quickly. It says, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, the whole key here, remain in him. And we're going to pick this up in this final section. So first of all, what's inside a believer? The truth, the spirit, and thirdly, there should be the assurance. That's what we're going to look at in verses 28 and 29, the assurance. It says, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So the whole emphasis here is on remaining in him. This, this command is given at the end of verse 27 and again in verse 28. Do you see it there? It says, remain in him. And in verse 28, it says, continue in him. It's actually the same word. It's six times in our short text, but it's translated different ways in the NIV. Uh, if you have an ESV, it uses the same word almost every time, abide. Abide in him. Abide means to remain, to continue, even to dwell, to like set up residence, to hang out, to remain. That's the word abide. And specifically, in regard to Jesus, to remain in, in him is to remain in fellowship with him, to remain close together, and to remain in obedience to him, to abide in him. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Dan was teaching from the Gospel of John, same author. That was his Gospel account. These are his letters, his epistles. And there's this wonderful parallel that Dan was highlighting between the two. And so in John chapter 15, this is what Dan was teaching on. It says in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And then verse 10 of John 15 says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Pastor Dan talked about abiding in Christ and how it means, first of all, union with Christ. That's when we're saved. We're united with Christ. We're reconciled to God. And then it also means communion, which refers to our fellowship with Christ. He said how abiding in Christ is fellowship that produces fruit, fruits such as love and joy and peace. Now think about that metaphor of, a, of fruit for a moment. When you see a branch, a vine with branches that have like fruit on them, big grapes maybe. What is that fruit doing? What is that branch doing to produce that fruit? Is it like straining? Is it like running around looking for resources? Is it groaning and sweating? No, the branch, it just hanging there. But what else is it doing? It's remaining connected to the vine. That's all it's doing. See, the vine provides all of the resources that the branch needs to produce the fruit. But if you separate it, if you detach it from the vine, no fruit. And so, this is, again, what Jesus said. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide, remain, continue in Christ. Do you remember when Jesus went to the home of Martha and Martha was running around in the kitchen doing all the preparations and she was all stressed out. And Mary is just sitting at Jesus' feet and she's worshiping and fellowshipping with him. And Martha wants Jesus to rebuke Mary. 
Lord, tell her to get the work. And Jesus said, no, no, Martha, you are worried about many, many things. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. She was abiding with Jesus. He said, that's better. Now, it's not to say that there's not work, and a lot of it, involved in following the Lord and serving him. There is. In fact, there's a lot of work, and there's even opposition to the work. And even persecution, as Pastor Dan taught about last week. But the wisdom and the power and the joy and the peace to endure all that comes from abiding in Jesus. Comes from spending time with him, worshiping him, meditating on his word, communing with him in prayer throughout the day. Enjoying the relationship that we have with him. That's in abiding in Jesus. This is where we get the motivation and the endurance to do the hard work. Apart from that, we can do what? Nothing. Nothing of any value. Back in my, um, my, my corporate days, I worked for a, a big corporation. And my boss, his name was Mason, and he was the CIO. And it was my job to serve him and to implement his agenda for our information systems within the company. And it was a lot of work. But Mason was, I think, the, the finest manager of people that I've ever worked with. I loved working for Mason. He didn't just drive and demand work. We had this great working relationship. We traveled together. We traveled a lot. But we traveled together. We enjoyed meals together. We'd have times of just recreation together. We'd talk about our families together. When we could, we'd have our wives come along with us. And we'd enjoy kind of family time together. He didn't hesitate to correct me if I did something wrong. He did it firmly but gently. But he also would greatly encourage me. And he would celebrate the things that I did right and did well. It was just a joy to work for Mason. I loved it. My job was to make him look good and to accomplish his objectives for the company. And so he motivated me to do my very best work. And I did. I think that was my very best business work. Now think about your relationship with the Lord. It too should be a working relationship. Have you ever thought about that? We talk a lot about a personal relationship, but do you ever think about a working relationship with the Lord? Ephesians 2.10 says that we as believers are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We might not think about our relationship with the Lord. It's a working relationship. And so there could be a couple mistakes that we could make in this regard. One of them would be working and serving like crazy and not abiding in Jesus. We could be like Martha and not Mary. In this mode, Jesus would seem to be little more than a divine taskmaster. Do this, do that. I'm trying, Lord, I'm going as hard as I can. I'm doing, doing. And you know what? Our, the result would be? It would be frustration and burnout. There'd be no joy in that. But that's how some Christians operate. All work and no abiding. But another mistake we can make is not abiding in Christ and not working at all. That's where we're just wasting our lives on vain things. Dan talked about this last week or the week before too. Don't waste your Christian life. Our lives are meant to be fruitful. So here's a thought that I found challenging as I was just preparing this week. It's not possible to abide in Christ and not do good works. It is not possible to abide in Christ and not do good works. It may be possible to be in Christ and not do good works for a while anyway, but it is not possible to abide in Christ and not do Good works, because when we abide in Christ, our hearts and our minds are filled with his priorities and his values. We're implementing his agenda for the kingdom. He works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose, scripture says. 
Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. No question. It's not. You might abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So I say it's impossible to abide in Christ and not do good works. James bore this out. And so Pastor Dan asked four questions two weeks ago. He said, number one, are you attached to divine? This speaks to our union with Christ. If you're not a believer, you're, you're an enemy of God. You're alienated. Christ came that we might have reconciliation. So are you attached to divine? Secondly, are you abiding in Christ? This speaks to our communion with Christ, not just our union. Third, is your life bearing fruit? And then there's an important fourth one. Are you experiencing full and lasting joy? That's a challenge we saw in chapter 15 of John's gospel. And it's the same challenge that we see here in John's first epistle. And so verse 28 says this. And now, dear children, continue or abide in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. When he appears, I think it's pretty clear. I believe that when he appears is referring to the first resurrection and the rapture. When Jesus comes back for his church, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then those who are still alive will be caught up together with them and the Lord in the air. Their first resurrection and the rapture of the church. And I believe it's right after that that believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this is not a judgment of salvation. We're already saved. We have the Spirit guaranteeing our salvation. It's not the great white throne judgment that Revelation talks about for unbelievers. It's the judgment seat of Christ. And it's where Christ will reward each one based on their works, on the fruit in their life. It's a little bit, the imagery is a little bit like a sporting event, the Olympics. And at the end, awards are doled out based on one's performance. That's biblical. And so, John writes, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. That means we could be unconfident and ashamed when he comes back. So imagine, what will your thoughts be like on that day? Jesus comes back. Maybe you're already dead. He raises you up and you're before him bodily. Not just your soul, bodily. Or maybe you're still on the earth. And through the rapture, he draws you to himself. His whole church is there. What will your thoughts be? Will it be things like, I am so glad I did this or I did that for the Lord. Man. Or... I'm so glad I didn't do that, and I didn't do that. I'm so glad, I'm confident. Or will it be, oh, I wish I would have taken this seriously, and I would have done this, or I wish I would have done that, or, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. How could I have done that? Will we be confident and unashamed? Or will we not when we stand before the Lord? And how can you change that? Well, did you know that in the New Testament, there's actually the depiction of someone who, what I'm calling is barely saved. That almost sounds outrageous. You might think, Paul, you're either saved or you're not. What's this about barely saved? Well, it's in 1 Corinthians 3.15. And it's speaking of believers. And it says that on that judgment day, quote, Fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. In other words, he's still saved, but there was little fruit in his life. And there'll be little reward in the life to come. All that that he worked for, burned up. It was for naught. He was barely saved. That's a little frightening. It's not a popular subject to teach on. Yet it's biblical. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. 
So what's the difference between being confident and unashamed when he appears or being ashamed? Well, verse 28 says, it will be the extent to which we abide in Christ. See that? Look at verse 28. Abide in him, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Sadly, we are surrounded by things that try to keep us from abiding in Christ. At our elders meeting on Wednesday night, we were talking about what is it that keeps more people from participating in the quarterly worship and prayer events. And we thought about the day of the week. We thought about the time. We thought about different things. But the single largest obstacle that we couldn't avoid, it just seemed is that we're just all so busy. We're busy. Elders included, we're busy. We thought that is probably the biggest obstacle to greater participation is the busyness. Maybe you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's novel, The Screwtape Letters. It's this historical piece written from the perspective of a bunch of demons plotting to trip up mankind and believers as well. Well, I came across a short illustration story that's similar to that. It's called Satan's Meeting. And let me read you Satan's meeting. It says, one day Satan called a worldwide convention of demons. In his opening address, he said, we can keep Christians, or I'm sorry, we can't keep Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate relationship with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches. Let them have their covered dish dinners, but steal their time so that they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus. This is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them by gaining hold of their, distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this? The demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and, in, and invent numerous schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, spend, spend and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day so that they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. As their families fragment, soon their homes will offer no escape from the pressures at work. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still small voice. Entice them to play the radio or CDs everywhere they drive. Keep the TVs, DVRs, and DVDs and their PCs going constantly in their homes. And see to it that every store and restaurant in the world played non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their mind and break that union with Christ. Fill their coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their, their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotional offering, promotional offering free product services and false hopes. Keep skinny, beautiful models on the magazines and TV so their husbands will believe that outward beauty is what's important and they'll become dissatisfied with their wives. Keep the wives too tired to love their husbands at night. And give them headaches too. If they, <laughs> I'm just reading this. <laughs> if they don't give their husbands the love they need, they will begin to look elsewhere. That will fragment the family even quicker. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted. Keep them too busy to go out in nature and reflect on God's creation. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, plays, concerts, and movies instead. Keep them busy, busy, busy. And when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they leave with troubled consciences. Crowd their lives with so many good causes that they have no time to seek power from Jesus. 
Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the good cause. It will work. It will work. It was quite a plan. The demons went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get more busy and more rushed, going here and there, having little time for their God or their families, having no time to tell others about the power of Jesus to change lives. I guess the question is, has the devil been successful at this scheme? It says, you be the judge. Does busy, B-U-S-Y, mean being under Satan's yoke? Is that what busy is? Now, that's convicting. I mean, all of us probably can identify multiple places in there where the Lord, by the Spirit, is going, that's you, Paul, that's you. But in all fairness, busyness itself is not wrong. Think about this. Jesus was busy. He was busy. Sometimes he would stay up late hours. He worked late hours. He often went without sleep. He got up early in the morning to pray while it was still dark outside. Other times he stayed up all night praying. He was so tired he fell asleep in the boat. He was busy. But he was busy doing the things that God called him to do. So we need to consider this. Is godliness the cause of our busyness? Or is it a casualty thereof? Are we busy because we're going about doing what God wants us to do? Or are we so busy we don't have time to do what God wants us to do? In other words, are we busy because we're abiding in Christ? And spending that time so that we can do the things he calls us to with great joy. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anyone. That's between you and the Spirit. See, that's, that's his work to convict, not mine. I'm just trying to make clear the passage that the Spirit has laid before us. So that we can process through this and apply it. And so this passage says, continue, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him. At his coming. Well finally verse 29. It says. If you know that he is righteous. You know that everyone who does what is right. Has been born of him. Now this is where the assurance comes in. We know. We do know that he is righteous. And so those who are born of him. Should resemble him. Don't you think? Because God is conforming them. Into the likeness of his son. And again, that's not perfection, but it should be progress. We should see progress in our lives toward Christ's likeness. Step by step, moving in that direction. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, We are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. And so when we see ourselves walking in obedience to Christ... It gives us that assurance that we are God's children and that his truth is in us and his spirit is in us and his assurance is in us as well. Because it's only by the power of God's spirit that we can live the life that he calls us to. It's the only way we can do it. And so it becomes an evidence that he is in us. So as you reflect on this passage, I've been studying it on it all week. Think about what might be the next step for me in this process? What is God calling me to do? See, we can be hearers, and y'all have been really good listening, even without the caffeine gum, <laughs> without the extra cushions and whatever else Dan had in his bucket. But if we only listen and we don't do anything with it, we deceive ourselves. That's what James says. So what might the Holy Spirit be calling you to do and are you being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory? What would be that next step? You can't boil the ocean. You can't do everything at once. But go home and meditate. What would God call me to do? How do I need to abide in Christ more so that I'm motivated and empowered to do the work he has to me to do with great joy? So let me just recap a couple things as we wrap this up. The Christian life... The Christian faith and certainty, they go hand in hand. They do. Hebrews says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
Secondly, if you are a believer, you know the truth. We just need to be sure that we remain in the truth. And if we do, then we'll also remain in close fellowship with the Lord. Third, we can't allow our longing for something new and different to draw us away from the truth of the gospel. New is not better when it comes to spiritual truth because genuine truth never changes. Next, our relationship with Christ should be a working relationship. We are created in him to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. Anything less is not an obedient relationship. Busyness can keep us from abiding in Christ. And that will keep us from bearing fruit. It's not possible to abide in Christ and not do good works. It's not possible. Because when we abide in him, he gives us that desire and that ability to do his will. If there's not fruit in our life, we might be saved, but we're not abiding in Christ. And then finally, our, our obedience to Christ gives us the assurance of our salvation. Because it's only by the power of God's spirit that we can live the life that he calls us to live. So as we see in ourselves increasingly the character the obedience to Christ. We have confidence of our salvation. So here's how it kind of all goes together. When we embrace the truth of the gospel and place our faith in Christ, the result is salvation and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces good work in and through us, which results in confident assurance of our salvation. So what should be inside every believer? The truth, the spirit, and the assurance of our salvation. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, your word, the word we have in front of us, the Bible, it is truth and it's life. Who should, to whom should we turn? You have the words of eternal life. You and you alone, God. And we hold it in our hands. And God, you offer us your word and your truth and your life freely and abundantly. What a great God we have. And we love you, God. And it's out of this that we worship you. God, you laid down everything for us just so that we might be reconciled to you. Help us, as Dave taught, to be willing to lay down our lives in gratitude and in service to you, a true living sacrifice. This is our act of worship, God, a living sacrifice. God, help us to do this. Help us to long for that. Give us the power to accomplish that for your kingdom and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship them. Will you stand with us?